0: In general, we really like a dry year because it keeps disease pressure down.
1: Welcome to Extension Out Loud, Season 2, Episode 4, the fourth episode of our Harvest Highlights series. I'm Paul Treadwell here with
2: Katie Balden.
1: And in this episode, we're going to be talking grapes. Katie, who are we talking with?
2: So we talk with Hans walter Peterson. He's a viticulture extension specialist and team leader of the Finger Lakes Grape Program.
1: And joining us for the conversation is Tim Weigel. Tim is the statewide grapes and hops specialist and the team leader for the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program. And we have a fairly wide-ranging conversation that covers a, a lot of topics involving grapes.
2: Yep, both grapes for winemaking and table grapes.
1: Juice grapes.
2: Juice grapes.
1: So that's the uh, episode you're going to be listening to right now.
0: My name is Hans Walter-Peterson. I'm the Viticulture Extension Specialist with Cornell's Finger Lakes Grape Program.
3: And I'm Tim Weigel. I'm the Statewide Grape and Hops IPM Specialist with the New York State Integrated Pest Management Program and also team leader of the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program.
1: Thanks, welcome, guys. We're talking harvest 2018 this year, so what has the season been like for grapes?
0: We're just thankful it's done. <laughs> 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 I suck that. <laughs> in the Finger Lakes, it was really a tale of two very different seasons in some ways. We always talk about that every growing season can be drastically different from the last. We can even have pretty significant periods within a growing season, different phases. In the Finger Lakes, the first half of the year was not overly warm, but it was very dry, especially when we got into June and July, to the point we were actually starting to see a few vineyards starting to show some drought stress symptoms, which is a little bit surprising. In general, we really like a dry year because it keeps disease pressure down, and so it helps with that immensely. But then once we hit August, it was like a switch got flipped. We had more rain, and we actually had the bigger problem that we had this year is we had the most high humidity days than we've had historically, as far as we could tell. So the disease issues really started to ramp up as we got into the ripening part of the season, the latter part of the season. And so it kind of really changed the character of the the year and the amount of work that that the growers had to put in to kind of bring in a good quality crop at the end of the year so it was definitely a challenging one especially like I said the last half of the year we often talk about years where we have to pick the grapes at a certain point or and years where we get to pick them when we want to this was for the most part this was a year when we picked grapes when we had to just to make sure that we were getting decent decent fruit in
3: and Tim how was it out your way kind of echo a little bit of what Han said there. We started off the year and it was cool. And we were talking about we're going to be so many days behind average for the bloom period, which is an important time for growers to say, okay, here's my bloom period. Um, Research has been done that in juice grapes for every three days early, we are with a bloom date, we can ripen an extra ton of fruit. So it started off, we were six to seven days behind average. So growers were making plans to try and limit crop, their the various inputs that they were going to do. And then all of a sudden we warmed up and we ended up being about four to five days ahead of average. So this was a season where I think, as Han said, we're glad it's over. The growers were constantly having to change any sort of medium or long range planning that they were making for this season. It was always in flux. We too ran into later season. We started getting rainfall, which created problems for some of the diseases. We did start to get not so much in the juice grapes, but in our wine grape production, we started to see some of the rots coming in. And so as Hans mentioned, um, we were harvesting maybe a little bit earlier than we wanted to to make sure that we had the sound fruit that the winemakers would Like, as far as juice grapes go, we got a lot of very heavy rain events this year in the two to two and a half inch range. And so we actually, for the first time in my memory, saw extensive berry splitting in the Concord variety, which we typically, that's a pretty tough skin variety and we don't see the berry splitting, but this year it was quite extensive. One thing we noticed going through that roller coaster of cool, hot, dry, high humidity was that the sugar accumulation was not what we typically see where as the weeks progressed, the sugars get higher. Brooks tended to get to about the minimum standard that the processors would take and it was tough to budget off that until very late in the season. So this was, I think 2018 will go down as a challenging year.
1: The variation that we experienced in 2018, has that been typical lately or is that a a deviation from the norm?
3: Interesting you say the average normal, I don't think there is one. Um, The previous two years, we've had some rain early on and it didn't look like we were going to have a good season and then fall came and we had brilliant sunshine, warm temperatures and the crop was saved in 2016 and 2017. And we looked at that and thought that isn't normal. Typically we see the rains come about, you know, it's harvest time in western New York when it starts raining. it's gonna to get to the point where I don't think you're gonna have an average or a normal anymore. Growers are gonna be tested to put up with whatever mother nature throws them.
2: When did harvest begin this year?
3: For Concord out here, Constellation Wine Company started a little bit earlier mm-hmm. than everyone else. So they were in the middle of September.
2: Is that normal for the, uh, the juice grapes to be picked earliest?
3: Because they are picked for sugar content, they'll get everything they need at 15 degree brick or 15% sugar. And so anything above that, they can actually get too high a sugar content and it makes it difficult to press them. Mm -hmm. So um, we tend to see where the Concords get picked, Niagara's are picked first. Some of the wine, early season wine grapes are harvested. And then the Concord, which is the main one out here, and then you have some of the later season wine grapes.
1: Hey Hans, what kind of grapes do you guys grow in your areas? Do you do juice grapes and wine grapes?
0: (laughs) You name it, we got it. Um, We've got the whole gambit. In the Finger Lakes, we've documented over a hundred different grape varieties that are grown to some extent. We have some juice grapes. For all the talk in the Finger Lakes of Riesling and Cabernet Franc and some of these other wine varieties, they're still more conquered here than anything else. I think people may forget that um, or not know that. But there's still a higher, more acreage of Concord than any other grape variety. But a lot of that goes into bulk wine processing. So for places like Constellation Brands, like Tim mentioned, Royal Wine Company down in New York City, some of it goes out to Western New York for juice processing, for National Grape Cooperative. But most of the Concord here goes into more bulk wine production. But we've got Concord and Niagara and a lot of those native grape varieties, just the same varieties that they have out west. The western industry is just a lot more concentrated on those juice varieties and the Finger Lakes is a much more diverse mix.
1: We assume that that's due to climate and land type and things like that?
0: To some extent, although there's some real similarities between the Lake Erie Belt and, and the Finger Lakes. I think it's more just how the different industries have evolved here in the 70s and 80s, when the bulk wine production of the large companies like Taylor Wine Company and Gold Seal and some of those operations were starting to cut off grape purchases from growers, I think the two regions, and, and Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding was that the two regions basically kind of changed focus. More small family wineries started in the Finger Lakes in response to that. And in the Lake Erie region, more of the growers kind of went back to growing the juice grapes because that was a very reliable market. You had National Grape Cooperative and a number of other processors that were mostly interested in Concord production. And so that's kind of how those two regions diverged back then. It's somewhat related to climate, but it's just as much, I think, related to the market realities in the two regions. Hmm. Tim, is that true? Yes. And I think
3: part of it has to do with disposable income back in those days because you have Rochester and Syracuse, which tended to have more jobs with more disposable income so that was the thing to do would be to go and do wine tours or visit wineries which helped the Finger Lakes grow in the wine industry and yeah I think out here Concord was a stable industry and the group out here saw the wine grape industry as uh, less stable because they weren't going to start their own wineries and so they were looking at delivery of grapes to a winery. And as Hans mentioned, Taylor, Gold Seal, when they went out of business, they basically lost their market. So I think Hans, yep, hit the nail on the head.
1: That's an interesting point about the economics of Syracuse and Rochester. I'd never thought of that.
0: Yeah, the majority of the wines sold by Finger Lakes wineries is still consumed within 200 miles of here.
2: Being in the Finger Lakes region, I'm pretty familiar with the wine tour industry. Is it similar today in the Erie region where people are going around doing a lot of those wine tours?
3: You're seeing a growth of the wine industry in western New York. So we have the Lake Erie Wine Trail and the Niagara Wine Trail. And we keep adding wineries to that. And we see folks coming from... Pittsburgh, Cleveland, they'll come down from Buffalo. But as Hans mentioned, it's a lot of the local folks that will do the wine tours. What is the general size
1: of the vineyards you guys are working with? Are they smaller operations? Do we have large scale growers?
0: In the Finger Lakes, we don't have as many large operations like they do out in Western New York. Um, we have a few growers who farm several hundred acres of grapes, but for the most part, most of the vineyards here are tend to be smaller. So average vineyard size here is probably more like 20 to 30 acres but it's a more diverse acreage than out west but i don't know tim do you have you probably have some statistics on kind of average vineyard size out there now
3: yeah well it's been changing because with juice grape consumption in america going down we've seen a tightening of the prices and so folks looking to get out we also have an older population of growers and so some are looking to get out so we're starting to see where the average size of the vineyard is getting larger as growers purchase vineyards from others so it'll be not a huge couple hundred acre piece but A number of smaller vineyards make up the larger vineyard operation. But we still have a range in size from, you know, a one or two acre grower up to several hundred acres for the native varieties even. With the wine grape production, those tend to be much smaller vineyards.
2: Are the growers mostly growing for their own production or are they primarily selling to other producers or other winemakers?
0: Here in the Finger Lakes, there's a real mix, I should say. Yeah. From a wine grape perspective, you're talking about things like Riesling, Chardonnay, Cabernet Franc, those kind of higher premium varieties. There are very few independent growers of those grapes left. There are a few out here, but a lot of those vineyards are tied to wineries now. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Those grapes are expensive to grow. And so being able to capture that added value that you get from a bottle of wine versus, you know, a ton of grapes really makes a difference. It makes that a, a much more viable business. Not to say that the independent growers aren't viable, but it, it's a tougher road to hoe for sure. But with the natives and a lot of the hybrid varieties, those tend to come primarily from independent growers who just sell them to other wineries.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about the difference between the native and hybrid varieties and other varieties?
0: So a lot of it comes down to adaptation to the environment talk about native varieties we're talking about things that have a at least a pretty strong background of the labrusca species of grapes and that species developed here in eastern north america over the you know centuries and millennia they have adapted themselves genetically to colder temperatures higher disease pressure higher humidity rainfall all that kind of stuff whereas something like riesling or chardonnay Its genetic background basically comes from closer to the Middle East, where it's hot and dry. And so the ability to grow grapes in an environment that's not like that gets more challenging as you get further away from that kind of climate. And then hybrids are grapes that are trying to meet both ends. They're trying to meet better disease resistance or better cold hardiness, while also having more of a premium type of wine flavors and wine characteristics so it's a largely a matter of adaptability to the climate growing Riesling in the Finger Lakes or in New York at all is a lot different from growing Concord um, Concords you might spray what Tim three or four times five times in a season and then Riesling you may have to spray 12 times in a season.
1: Can I assume that the Labrusca grapes when you talk about those Niagara is is a native? Yes
3: Niagara, Catawba, Concord,
0: those are the main three, yeah.
3: Can I go back and touch on the, your question about um, whether or not growers grow for their own wineries or, or for themselves or others? No, once we ask a question and answer it, we move on. Oh. <laughs> yes, of course you can go back. <laughs> well, in Western New York, it might be a little bit different um, in that most all the wineries in the region have at least some grapes. They do buy grapes from other growers um, that will be produced for them. But we also have processor out here, Walker Fruit Basket, who contracts with growers for grapes and then sends them across the Eastern United States into the Midwestern states to winemakers out there. So we have the mix of both. The wineries that grow their own grapes and then people who just produce grapes specifically for Walker's Fruit Basket who then ships it out of state. That does bring up the
1: question of export. And I assume with grapes, you're not gonna be able to export grapes, but what about grape juice and things like that? Is, is any of the New York market exported to other countries?
3: Hmm,
0: I don't know, Hans, other countries? <laughs> I was uh, I was just in Japan and I saw Welch's grape juice in a vending machine. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So some of it gets out there. And um, the New York Wine and Grape Foundation has had a program where they support New York wineries that want to export their wines to other countries. And so now there are some wines, very small amounts, but that are getting exported to Europe and into Asia. It's still a pretty small market market and still trying to get a foothold in in some of those places. But there is some marketing activity and some promotion activity to try to increase that market. So from the Finger Lakes industry, it's happening a little bit, but it's certainly not a major part.
2: And what is the market in the U.S. for Finger Lakes wines, you know, outside of New York State?
0: It's definitely growing. Part of the challenge is that You know, a lot of our wineries are still pretty small. So even what we might say is a medium-sized winery for New York, on kind of a global scale, they're pretty tiny. So there's definitely been more of a shift into wholesaling for the Finger Lakes wineries, working with distributors and getting into other markets. There's been a huge push over the past several years to get more of a presence in New York City. But now I think there's been a little bit more focus on trying to get more wines available in other parts of the country mostly the east coast Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so it's happening but like i said still the majority of the wine that we produce is probably consumed in the northeast for sure so tim what about out in niagara what about the
1: excellent wineries of buffalo
3: yep and uh, we'll go along with hans's comment that the size of the wineries um you'll see some that will try and go wholesale with distributors and that but for the most part you can make more money selling it out of your tasting room than you can through a wholesaler. And just the size is the limiting factor there. Since we're talking
1: about wine, what wine should we be thinking about buying that this year's vintage? What grapes
3: did really well? What do you think is going
1: to be performing?
3: I'd say go to your local wineries, do the tours and make a time. Because I will always remember this. I went down to a meeting one time and there was the, analogy professor and somebody asked him what a good wine was and he answered the wine that you like so I don't recommend wines I recommend going to tasting rooms and doing a tasting and find out which wine you really like and pick up a couple bottles. That's way too egalitarian, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want the wine I drink to be very special and exclusive. So
3: <laughs> then, what you need to do is start a little planting of grapes in your backyard and make your own wine. There you go. Very special. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will say, Paul. One of the things that's really great about Riesling as a Varietal that works well in the Finger Lakes. And frankly, also, I used to work out with Tim out in the western part of the state, and Riesling can grow really well out there too. So there's no reason that Riesling is just a Finger Lakes thing. But I will say, one of the really attractive things about Riesling as a varietal is that you can make really nice wines from it in a wide variety of vintages under a wide variety of conditions. We had a kind of a warmish, wet year this year, and, and kind of like Tim was saying, the ripening didn't quite happen the way we would ideally like it. You know, we didn't get the sugars quite as high as we might normally do, but we can still make a really nice wine out of a that kind of fruit. Two years ago, we had one of the hottest and driest growing seasons we've ever had, and so we had very different fruit characteristics than we had this year, for example, and you can make some really great wines out of those grapes, too, and so one of the really nice things about Riesling as a varietal for upstate New York is that even with that vintage variation that we have, Riesling is a very versatile grape when it comes to the types of wines it makes, and so you have a lot of different options to make different wines given the different conditions of the year, but they're still all can be good wines.
1: So Tim, why aren't you promoting Riesling heavily out in that area? According to Hans, you should be.
3: Oh, I, I mean Hans, what he said about being able to grow Riesling out here pretty much goes for any of the wine grape varieties that can be grown in the Finger Lakes. Mm -hmm. We have the wonderful Lake Erie out here and so we have the climate effects from that lake. So we can pretty much grow any variety that's there and I mean they make some really exceptional wines out here. It's just if you want a variety yeah you can go for Riesling but I still will maintain some people the best wine is a sweet Concord wine. Yep. Huh. You won't get them to taste a Riesling, or if they taste a Riesling, that's the reason the spit bucket is there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, it's very difficult with the population that's out there to say, you should try this, this particular variety and everybody will like it because my experience is that won't
0: happen. There's a saying in the industry that people talk dry and drink sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the there's a the perception that I should like dry wines like Riesling or, or something like that. But you talk to a lot of the wineries and people will say, well, I want to try your Riesling, but they'll walk out the door with half a case of Niagara.
2: Back to the topic of varieties, are you seeing any lesser known varieties or varieties that you wouldn't think of as being grown in New York State, kind of rising to prominence or uh, becoming more popular?
0: One of the wonderful things about working in this industry is that you see all sorts of things that growers are experimenting with and trying. There are some grape varieties that have been introduced here that I've been kind of surprised to see. Um, There's at least one vineyard, and there might be one or two others now, but at least one vineyard that has produced a grape called Albarino, which is typically something that's grown in Spain in pretty warm climates. But they planted it right next to Seneca Lake, right by one of the deepest parts of Seneca Lake, and it's survived, and they produce a pretty interesting wine from it. There's a few varieties that have come from less traditional cold regions, things like Gruner Veltliner
3: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, Saparavi. The Saparavi comes from Eastern Europe. So there's always some experimenting with different varieties. We've got one winery out here that has planted a couple of... Uh, cooler climate varieties from Italy. So there's always experimentation going on and it's interesting to kind of see what people are choosing. There's always interest in trying to find a bit of a different niche. The problem always is kind of, can you sell it? And Tim, is that your experience? Maybe not so much the newer varieties and this
3: and that. I think what strikes me out here is that we'll see some of the older varieties become popular again like Diamond is making a resurgence, Ives is coming back. We do have folks that they wanna try to be the only one with this variety. We tend to find that there's a reason they don't grow here. (laughs) (laughs) And when Han said they were growing, that one variety was growing at Seneca Lake right now, and I said, for now, until (laughs) right. 12 below zero again. Right. (laughs) It's more the seems to be cycling of old varieties for whatever reason coming back out here.
1: Given the interesting weather fluctuations we've experienced in the past couple of years, is there any prediction for what the next season is going to be like?
3: Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I have not seen a long-term forecast. And like I said, we look at the bloom period and the timing of that as an indicator of what the season is going to bring. And so we basically, if we can make it through the winter without any hard freezes or really cold temperatures, especially with the juice grapes, we can do multiple degrees below zero. With the wine grapes, if they hill them up to protect that graft union, we can make it through some of those. But if we can make it through the really cold temperatures in the winter, survive the springs, frosts, and the bloom period. So
0: ask me next June. <laughs>
3: you answer. Hans, do you want to
1: place
0: any bets? If I had any confidence in that, I could probably be a richer man than I am.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> no, I think the only thing that I've seen is that the latest prediction from the National Weather Service and, and NOAA is basically that the, there's a... Better than even chance that it'll be a bit of a warmer winter this year, which we would gladly take. I mean, that's one of the biggest hurdles that we have with grape growing is if we have a really cold winter, then we get either buds or entire vines that die Mm. if it gets cold enough. So if we can get through the winter and if that prediction is true, that would be lovely. And then once we get to spring, who knows what happens?
3: (laughs) (laughs)
1: This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson.